in the Old Testament, God gave us ten commandments, and over the years, people have humorously adopted an eleventh commandment. One that I remember that was quite well known for a number of years, a little different in the internet age, is thou shalt not pay retail. Meaning you, you better get it, go out and, and get a good price, don't pay the highest price. But in, uh, I would say, about the last 10 years or so, that has gotten more serious. And it seems to me now in our generation that the 11th commandment is, thou shalt not judge. And it is really associated with, thou shalt not judge people's identities. People's identities are based in a whole variety of things, and you know a lot of people in their job, in their career, in their talent, whatever they're doing. Uh, but in this day and age in which we live in, particularly people's uh, identity is based in their sexual preferences and their personal choices. And often, and, and it's a sad thing, that, that many such people have felt judged by Christians. And I'm sure there are many instances where it's true and many instances where they import that judgment into the relationship they now have with you. And you will often hear people quote Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not that you not be judged, which I have always maintained to you, I now believe is the most famous verse in the Bible because it's the one that even people who don't believe in Jesus seem to know. Now, I know that if you're a follower of Jesus, you might want to explain something to people. You might want to say that God judges people who are opposed to him. But we have to be very, very careful that we don't come off as trying to sound like we're better than other people. Because as what been well said, we're just beggars telling people where the, the bread is. And the Old Testament prophets, they, they knew this, they understood this. A lot of times we have to remember that their audience was people who claimed to be religious. Jesus, same thing, very, very harsh at times and uncompromising with the people who claimed to be religious while being differently toward, different towards people who didn't really understand. And and the Old Testament prophets primarily spoke to religious people. And since the message of judgment was so important, it had to be very carefully presented, but it also had to be truthfully presented. So when you want to put care and truth together, you have to be very, very careful how you go about it. They knew that the message of God's judgment had to be communicated effectively because for unbelieving people, including unbelieving religious people, eternity was at stake. When God's judgment was proclaimed, even the professing people of God had to understand the danger of sin, doing things which God says not to do or not doing what he says to do, and they needed to repent. We do too. We need to turn to God and start living out life the way he would have us to live. Now this may sound very odd to you. You're like, why are you talking about all of this? Because God wants us 
to consider his judgment. Why? So we don't have to experience it. So we can actually talk to other people about it in a way that doesn't come off that we think we're better than they are, because we're not. And so the title of our message today might seem a bit odd to you. It, the title of our message is The 11th Commandment and the Glory of God. Today, God uses an interesting word five times. He uses the word woe, which is usually a, a word of sorrow. Some translators say that the tone of it is aha. Others say the tone of it is alas. And it's used towards people who reject the end of what we looked at last week in verse 4, that the just shall live by his faith. But again, it's tough to get the, the tone. I can tell you this, in Scripture, God sometimes appears to be very angry, and sometimes he's not so angry. And he can be angry and not angry at the same time. We, it's not something we can really do. I, was, I remember sometimes I'd come home and my wife would say, you know, you're not going to believe what your son did. And it would be unfair for me to tell you which one of my boys it was. So I would go upstairs to, before I would go upstairs to talk to the youngest one. Uh, so I would be sitting down in the kitchen and, and Pam would say, you got to get up there and talk to him. And I'd have to say, well, I'm really not, I got to pretend like I'm angry because I, I can't do, you know, hey, buddy, how you doing? And anger at the same time. So, but God can do that. And, and so it's clear, though, in the Bible that God the Father and the Lord Jesus are clearly grieved when people violate God's holiness and they won't repent. They won't turn from their sin to a holy God. That means that part of our mission as followers of Jesus, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, before you turn me off, this is a very important message for you to hear. It means that part of our mission as followers of Jesus is to communicate with clarity and compassion while being totally honest and not shaving the truth, the holy heart of God to people. In other words, it's part of our role as followers of Jesus to represent God well. The Apostle Paul put it this way, years later from Habakkuk in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. What does an ambassador do? It takes a message from someone else and brings it over to another land. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. Another version says, certain that God is appealing through us. We implore you, some verses say, we plead with you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So today I come to you as an ambassador, and I believe that God is going to be pleading with you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, to be reconciled to him. And the prophet Habakkuk lived about 600 B.C. in the area of Judea, where Jerusalem is, southern Israel, 
And he wanted the people of God, they had fallen away from following God, and he wanted the people of God to turn back to following God. And he comes to God, and he's like, hey, God, it's not working. Jeremiah and I, we've been trying, a couple other prophets, we've been trying, it's not working. Do you have a plan on how to do it? God says, yeah, I do. You know the wicked Babylonians who've been rolling over the whole rest of the, of the world? And Habakkuk's like, yeah, yeah, I know who he is. I'm going to send him to your land. And I'm going to send Babylon to your land, uh, him being Babylon. And, and Babylon is going to fix the problem. Now, Habakkuk, not shy, basically says to God, excuse me, that's an awful idea. <laughs> that's a terrible, terrible idea. And last week we saw that God divides the world, it's consistent with the scripture, into two different categories. And last week we looked at the righteous, those who follow the way of faith, or as we like to say in this day, who like to follow the way of Jesus. This week he's going to look at the second group, who we would refer to as the crowd, or the, the proud, who reject God, those who are boastful, boastful before God. He sees them as boastful. He sees them as arrogant, as being self-reliant. And it's those people who will be judged by God. Now, it's an interesting way in the way God does it. And if you just read through it quickly, if you're on a Bible reading plan or something like that, which I fully endorse, it's easy to miss the way God does it and he sort of does it the way a judge might do it in a courtroom. You actually, we get into the thinking of God. He, he first off gives them the evidence of their guilt. He's talking to the Babylonians, and this is the evidence of their guilt. In other words, God sent them to fix the Israelites, but now he's looking into the future where what did they do? They overstepped their bounds. They, they were not good ambassadors, if you will. They were doing stuff they shouldn't have been doing. So God gives them the evidence of their guilt, the result of their guilt. We might call it their sentence. And then God does something very unusual. He tells us why. He tells us why he did what he did. So let's jump in verse 6. It's just sort of a little intro to this section. He says, will not all these, and, and this is the conquered nations that he talked about in verse 5, take up a proverb, some of your versions say a taunt, against him. Against who's him? Babylon, or it just could be the proud in general. And taunting or mocking, a, and a taunting riddle against him and say, let's stop right there. Now sometimes you read the Bible and you're like, what in the, what is this? What is this? God is announcing his judgment on the Babylonians, on the proud, by speaking as the nations that the Babylonian empire had crushed. And we looked at that back in chapter 1. The point is that the Lord is making is this. While it seems like oppressive people while it seems like oppressive nations get away with literally murder, God says they're not going to get away with it. 
So we think, in this world, we think, you know, oh, look at these people. They get away with everything. You know, the rich, the privileged people, or these other people. The way they're, you know, some mistake by the arresting officer or something like that. And they, we think, oh, they got away with it. The Lord's like, they're not going to get away with it. I'm going to show you how they're not going to get away with it. And, and, but also, the Lord wants to warn all the people who are like the Babylonians that rebellion against God is wrong and it carries consequences. And if we possess these traits, and remember the scripture says we have to live it all out perfectly, we're going to suffer the consequences and we won't get away with it either. So there's five woes. The first one is this. Woe to the plunderer. Woe to the plunderer. What is a plunderer? It's someone who steals. Someone who steals. So let's pick up verse 6 in the middle and go to the end of verse 8. And first the Lord presents the evidence. Woe to him who increases what is not his. Another version says, piles up stolen goods. How long? And to him who loads himself up with many pledges. Another version says, makes himself wealthy by extortion. So what's the result of that? Verse 7, will not your creditors or your debtors rise up suddenly? What is he saying? That the nations you once rolled over, aren't they going to come back to you now when you're not doing so well? The Babylonians will be invaded by the Medes and the Persians eventually and taken over that it will be payback time, and those nations will say to you, you owe us what you took from us, and probably with interest. Will they not awaken who oppress you? In other words, it says, make, and make you tremble, and you will become their booty. I mean, that word, some verses say spoil or prey. You, you'll become the prey now. In verse 7, God tells us why he judges them. Verse, verse 8, I'm sorry. Because you have plundered, you basically, you've ripped off, you've looted, you've stolen, you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Because you did it, now they're going to do it to you because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. So what did you do? You destroyed everything and everybody in your path to make yourself rich. Now, a lot of people say, in the end, doesn't God forgive everyone? Well, no is the answer to that question, and certainly not here. These people roll over everybody to make money. And another one way they do it is they do it with pledges. And you're like, pledges? Is that like you pledge a frat house or something like that? What is that? No, pledges are collateral to ensure a loan would be repaid. But what they did was they set the people up to fail. So they had them sign over their land or their homes or their farms or whatever, and then they made conditions impossible for them to pay them back. A lot of times they would enslave the people, that if you didn't pay it back, not only did I get your collateral, but you would have to become my slave and now the Lord says, oh, guess what, Babylon? Guess what, people who are like that? Now you owe them. Now it's payback time. We might say this in our day. 
make your money honestly and don't use people's misfortune as an opportunity for you to make money. That's wrong. Honestly, it doesn't mean if you have, like, you have a service and like, I can't do it, I can't charge, is that what you're saying? No, but you shouldn't be price gouging them just because you've sort of got them over a barrel. Money is important, and, but how you get it and how you make it is important, and followers of Jesus are called to make money with honesty and integrity. That takes us right into the second woe, woe to the greedy, verse 9 through 11. Well, here's the evidence. Woe to him who covets evil gain or unjust gain for his house. Woe to him, another version says, who dishonestly makes his wealth for his house. House would mean dynasty. In this case, uh, would, would be the nation, how the nation of Babylon built up their empire by greed, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. Probably the idea is that he took his money and he just built this big fortress to make himself secure, like an eagle's nest on high. And, oh my gosh, have we learned recently that you can only make yourself so secure? And then God tells him, why? You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples or plotting the ruin of many peoples. And the result is, and sin against your soul. Another version says, shaming your own house and you forfeited your own life. And then verse 11 is really interesting. Verse 11 says, even your house knows it. This wonderful big house that you built at the expense of other people, even your house knows it. Look at verse 11. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the timbers or the woodwork will answer it or will echo it. So the stone in your house, the wood in your house, they form a choir to sing, a worship team to sing how dishonest you are. Now, greed and lack of generosity is very natural to people who don't trust God. Now, let me just stop there for one second. That includes people who say they're followers of Jesus. Because a lot of people who are followers of Jesus are actually very greedy. They actually are not very, very generous people. And, and it's very easy for us to work only to enrich ourselves. In their pride, they make their money. There's no need for God. There's no need for dependence on God. And once again, we can only be so secure, and some people work so hard to make themselves so secure, and then before you know it, it's gone. Many people seek wealth without character and without boundaries, a strategy that is destined to fail. We see all these scandals with these super rich people. And you know, we, we think 
that that could never happen to us. Uh, yes, we probably won't make headline news, but certainly we could be that way. We could be that dishonest. Notice verse 11, the walls talk, the, the, the stones in the woods sing of the builder's greedy injustice. How different than 600 years later when Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey on the triumphal entry or, or Palm Sunday. In Luke 19, the people were screaming it out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Luke 19, 39 through 40, it says, and some of the Pharisees, those would be the religious leaders, called to him, called to Jesus from the crowd. They said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to shut up, basically. Stop saying that. But he, Jesus, answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So for the greedy, the stones are crying out to their greed from the walls of their house. But for Jesus, the stones would cry out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Through misuse of power, they, the Babylonians ruined their own house. They ruined their own dynasty, their own nation. It will collapse and it will crumble under the weight of its own sin. The nest will not be able to handle the weight. The house will not be able to handle the weight. Some of you are right now or you will be put into a position of power and authority or a position of wealth. Use that position. Use that wealth to help people. You, I know a lot of you think, well, if, if I had more money, I would be more generous. Do you know that typically as people's incomes go up, their percentage of generosity goes down? Some of you heard a story I told years ago. Of, you know, I was talking with a guy one time, and he said that he made $1.7 million, and his wife wanted him to tithe, and he didn't. And so that would be $170,000. He said to me, Do you, you don't think God expects me to give $170,000 a year uh, to the church, do you? And I, I said, no. And he goes, well, good. I said, I would think he would expect you to give a lot more than that. I mean, gosh. You, you, you could give that much money and still have plenty to live off of. But if money's your God, how much is enough? What did Rockefeller say? Just a little bit more. And so if God puts you in that position, use it, use your power, use your authority, use your money to help people. And don't be greedy. Not only is that wrong, is it won't last. It was the path of destruction for the Babylonians. Finally, God said, listen, part of the plan was that you guys didn't see was that I sent my people down to your land for 70 years and you just made things worse than they had to be. And so somebody else came in, the Medes and the Persians, and took over their dynasty, their empire. Number three, Woe to the ruthless, verse 12 through 14. Well, we begin with the evidence. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed 
who establishes a city by iniquity. Another version says a city by injustice, another one by crime. Here's the result. Behold, it is not of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the Lord Almighty. It is not of the Lord of hosts that the people's labor to feed the fire. What does that mean? You see, when they went into the other lands, they had all these, this slave labor to build their big buildings. And then those buildings would eventually burn. God says, that was not, what the, that was not their job. And so now their, their labor for you is just feeding the fire. And he says, and the nations weary themselves in vain. Nations that, that were working for these you know, ruthless people were wearying themselves. They were getting tired for nothing. It, was, it wouldn't last what they were working, what they were made to work for. God tells us why. Verse 14, he gives us the plan of God and the destination of history. It's like this shining light in the middle of this section here. For the earth will be filled. God said, those buildings, that's not the plan. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So verse 12 covers much of human history. That kingdoms built on violence, oppression, racism, corruption won't last. And the reason they won't last is that the Lord will not let nations built on bloodshed last. Because the only kingdom built on the king's own blood, the cross of Christ, the eternal kingdom is the kingdom that will last. So while the people, if, even if they went to Babylon, you know, they were constantly bringing in materials and people and money and everything to build their city, they would see these magnificent buildings and God would look from, his, from, his, from the heights of heaven and he would say, I don't see magnificent buildings. I see a kingdom built on bloodshed. I see a kingdom built on meaningless, vain labor. The ultra-rich King Solomon wrote these words, Psalm 127.1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, including the eagle's nest, no matter how secure you think you are, the watchman stays awake in vain. If you're not a follower of Jesus, let me just ask you this. Have you found a lot of your plans have been characterized by futility? A lot of your plans have been characterized by frustration. Maybe you even are a follower of Jesus and you would say that characterizes a lot of your plans. Do you know that's probably a good indication to you that the Lord is calling you? To the unbelieving person, to call you to put your trust in him. To the believing person, to call you to lay aside that sin and to put your trust in him. Why? Why would the Lord want you to lay aside this stuff? The answer is actually in verse 14. So you are part of it when the earth will be filled with the knowledge 
and the glory of the Lord. The knowledge of the Lord. You're like, well, I know about God. No, 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 no. That's not what he's talking about. That word know in the Bible is a very interesting word. It's actually word of a, a word that's used of sexual intimacy. In other words, a husband and a wife, God says, I want them to know each other. I want them to have that intimacy. And so the Lord wants you to know him in, the, in a sense of he wants your relationship with him to be loving, trusting, and to be intimate. And here the Lord shows Habakkuk something really amazing, something really worth looking forward to. Something, dare I say, to be willing to bank your entire earthly future on. He says, Habakkuk, there is going to be a day of global glory. A wonderful day of global glory. And he says, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What is he saying? The glory of the Lord is going to cover every single inch of this earth. Even the darkest and depth of the sea, the glory of the Lord will be experienced there. The glory of the Lord is associated with the powerful presence of the Lord. Sometimes theologians call that the weighty presence of the Lord. Friends, I, I know this is largely an opinion, but I'm going to appeal to verse 14. That's what the world needs. That's what the church needs. We don't need to be filled with a bunch of self-help, positive stuff, that everything's fine, and if you just do A, B, and C, four steps to this, four steps to that, that everything's going to be great. We need an earthly experience of the glory of the Lord to prepare us for that day. Now, please listen to this very carefully. This is very important. God's glory is why there must be judgment on sin. God's glory is why his weightiness, his holiness, is why there must be judgment upon unbelief. God's glory is why there must be judgment on all hostility or indifference towards God. All that stuff has to be judged, and it has to be out of here. Why? To make room for the glory of God. Please get that. Please get that. That's why we all must come to God and repent. Because we will be overcome with this glory if we are not participants in this glory here on earth. Have you caught a glimpse of that glory? The Apostle John wrote these words, John 1.14, talking about Jesus and the Word. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews chapter 1, uh, talking about God the Father being seen in the person of Jesus Christ, says this in verse 3, Hebrews 1.3, who, Jesus, being the brightness of His glory 
and the express image of his person. Another version says the exact representation of the invisible God and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by, by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's why Jesus said, people said, show us the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul was explaining a mystery that was revealed to the followers of Jesus. Not some mystery like we can never know what it is, but a mystery that was once concealed is now revealed to us. And he says this, Colossians 1.27, To them, those who trust in Jesus, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So if Christ is the glory of God, and Christ, when you put your trust in him, comes to live inside of you, you did you know that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that you are a glory container? That you carry the glory, and when the glory of God comes to inhabit the earth, you will be part of it. The fourth woe is the woe to the shameful. Not, not someone who feels shame, and thank God Jesus took our shame away at the cross, and, and we, it takes a while for some of us to, to, to be able to really process our way through that as the Lord, by His grace, brings us along, some quicker than others, that's okay. But when He says, woe to the shameful, we're talking about someone who causes shame for other people. Verse 15 through 17, we begin with the evidence. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor. Is that You're like, oh no, I offered my friend a beer. No, that, that's not what that is. It, it could be for the intent purposes of getting them drunk, but it could be also sometimes they would put when they would conquer nations, they would give people drink and they would drug them. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look upon his nakedness. So the Babylonians were, were known for drunkenness and, and they would drag, they would get people, they would get drunk, they would get people drunk, they would drag them into their, into their sexual practices, their captives. Verse 16, the result. You are filled with shame instead of glory. That's bad news in light of verse 14, isn't it? You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink. It's now God's saying, now it's your turn. Now it's your turn. And be exposed as uncircumcised. Now that's meant to be graphic. Some of your versions might clean that up. That's meant to be graphic. To be circumcised would be one of the people of God. And so you're gonna, he says, you're going to reveal yourself when you get naked that you are not one of the people of God. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you. Another version says, will come around to you. And utter shame, and utter shame will be on your glory. Another version says, and vomit will be upon your glory. Verse 17, for the violence done to Lebanon. Now, a lot of different thoughts about that, but one thing when we read about Lebanon in the Bible is the is the rich land, and, and it could be, he's saying, you raped the land too. 
you rape the people, you rape the land, you destroy the environment. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you, or another version says will overwhelm you, and the plunder or the destruction of beasts, of animals, which made them afraid. And then God tells them why he judges. Because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. It's what you did to people. That's why. Now, it seems to me here that the Lord is talking about those who take advantage of the vulnerable. Particularly here, those who are predators, especially sexual predators. And today, hard to believe in this day and age, and hard to believe that what I'm about to say is even big in the United States of America, that sex trafficking and sexual exploitation is huge and it's big business. That's one of the reasons there's a few organizations out there that do this, that we, uh, both Pam and I, do this individually, and we do it here as a church. One of the groups that we give money to is International Justice Mission because they are involved in, in freeing people from that. And, and these people are feeding all kinds of different things. They're big into prostitution. They're big into pornography. And I know that these things are big problems in America. I mean, maybe not as many people are going to prostitutes or looking at, that are looking at pornography. But please understand this, friends, that when you engage in those things, you're supporting it. Some of you say, oh, that hurts, man. Maybe it's supposed to. Maybe it's supposed to. When you consume it, you're supporting it. And, and the Lord tells Habakkuk, the shame that Babylon brought on others will be brought down on them. Again, a story I've told before. You know, my dad took me to a Yankees game, and then we went under the L. He's, he's from the Bronx, and, and he showed me the prostitutes. I was about 12 years old. He goes, do you understand what those women are doing? Now, I'm older, so I didn't have a, a lot of this knowledge that the typical 12-year-old today has. And he said, those men are, are, are driving up to those women and, ask, and paying them for sexual favors. I'll never forget what he said. He said, a lot of those guys are married. And he said, son, let me, let me just say two things to you. Number one, that's the way weak men live. That's the way weak men live. And number two, that's somebody's daughter. That's somebody's sister. Would you want that for your sister? And I was like, no way, Dad. Maybe for me, that's part of the reason why God always gave me a disgust for that stuff. I know others of you didn't have dads like that. Your dad said, oh, let's go to a prostitute so you know how a man's supposed to act. That's, that's Babylonian. That's Babylonian. God seems to be saying throughout all of this, you're wondering how, how could he use the Babylonians to do such things to God's people? He seems to be saying, if I send you 
to punish wickedness in another nation. If I send you to punish wickedness in my own people, and you do the same thing that I, to them that I sent you to stop, you're going to have to reckon with me. Or if you go overboard, doing way more than I told you to do, you're going to have to reckon with me. You see, one of the problems of sin is sin seeks its own glory. How? By drinking from its own cup and then often trying to get others to drink from the same cup. God looks the Babylonians straight in the eye, looks the shameful straight in the eye and says, guess what? You're going to have to drink from my cup. You make people drink from your cup, I'm going to make you drink from my cup. Now, some of you think, that is really cruel. I'm in the front row cheering for that. I'm in the front row cheering for that. Where God says, you're not going to do that to people and get away with it. It is just not going to happen. I don't care if you beat the system. I don't care if you're so powerful that nobody can deal with you. You're going to deal with me someday. And I'm going to take care of that. And the cup symbolizes God's wrath being poured out, figure a full cup being poured out against sin. And thank God that was the cup that Jesus drank on the cross, that when we put our trust in him, the wrath of God against our sin is no longer against us. It is now poured out on Jesus. And our shame is taken away. Again, it may take time to process that, but you've got to believe that one. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says, he went a little farther and fell on his faith and prayed, saying, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup? The cup of God's wrath upon all the woeful people of this world. And while you may think, well, I'm not as bad as the Babylonians, we all do possess a little something from each one of these woes, don't we? Or maybe one or two. Three times Jesus said, would you please take this cup from me? He says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, how do you know? How do I know that Jesus actually drank the cup? We know it in these words. My God my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what the cup was, separation from his father. But we also know that anyone, anyone, friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus, who puts their trust in Jesus, who repents, who turns to God and puts their trust in Jesus, they turn from their sin to God, they look at the cross, they see Jesus taking the wrath, the cup, drinking the cup in their place for their sins, that if you do that, you will not drink that cup, you will drink the cup of salvation instead. Friend, you will drink one of two cups. Either the cup of God's judgment or the cup of of salvation. That takes us to the fifth woe, um, the woe of the idolater. You see, it matters to God that your God is real. 
and he is the only living and true God. Now, Babylon, Babylon had plenty of religion, and they are a tremendous example to us that religion cannot save you. Verse 18 through 19, we get the evidence. We start with the evidence. What prophet is the image, some of your versions say the idol, that its maker should carve it? <laughs> okay. If you can make your idol, or if you know the book of Genesis, if you can sit on your idol and hide it, I wouldn't trust it. <laughs> the molded image, a teacher of lies that the maker or the craftsman of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols? God's like, what? Another version says, for, for its maker trusts in its own creation when it makes speechless idols. Never trust in a God that you can make. R result, verse 19. Woe to him who says to the wood, awake or come alive. To silent stone arise, it shall teach. Another version says, do you really think that you can make something and, and you can say to a block of wood, uh, arise? Do you really think it can teach you something? It, it, can, it can give you advice? And then God gives us the reason why he judges. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. Yeah, it might look good. Yet in it, there is no breath at all. And breath is symbolic of life. He says, listen, there's no life in your idol. There's no life in your God. And you trust it? God's like, are you kidding me? You're trusting it? Idols are gods that do not exist. They are all in the mind of the people who put their trust in them. We don't have time to do, go there now. We won't be out till the end of summer. But go to Isaiah chapter 44 for a great reading on, about how God feels about idols. And here he calls idols a teacher of lies. And sadly, what got the people of God into the mess that they were in was following the gods of the other nations because of their apparent success. And, you know, that's very easy for any of us to be sucked into. We watch the success of other people, and we think, well, they're not so smart. If I could just duplicate that, then success will be mine as well. And then we always say stuff like, and I'll be generous to God's work. That just never happens to people when you make your money that way. And, and the sin in our hearts gets us to long for that idol, especially the sin of covetousness. Apostle Paul said that was the one that did him in, covetousness. But, but following the idols of a culture actually violates the trust between God and his people. Remember we said that God wants us to know him. He wants to have an intimate relationship with us. And so God says, when you do that, when you follow the idols of your culture, that is a form of spiritual adultery, and you're actually viewing God, I'm actually viewing God, we're all actually viewing God when we do that, as being untrustworthy. Now it's interesting, this section begins with a taunt. You trust in idols, and then it moves to the woe. All the other sections began with the woe. This one didn't. 
and 600 years later, after hours of the religious leaders taunting Jesus, when he's finally on the cross is when they move to the woe. Matthew 27, 43 says this, He trusted in God. Let him, let God deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. But it was trust in God that kept Jesus on the cross. The, the essence of faith is that God calls his people to trust him at all times. The essence of unbelief is to trust in other things instead of God. But it's not just statues. The scripture talks about the idols of the heart. Remember we talked about identity earlier. A lot of people's identity is in money and sex and power. They trust themselves. They're trusting in their own intellect or their, their beauty, their ability, their successes. And, and we said at the beginning, this is to trust in an identity that it is a part that is apart from the Lord Jesus. And when we trust in an identity a trust from, uh, apart from Jesus, that's when sin is born. And here's the reality. Every other identity eventually will crash. You know, the Babylonians thought that they were the king of the hill. They were rolling over everybody. Nothing could beat us. And I hate to say it, this country has dealt with a lot of that proud arrogance. And right now, we are in a state of real humility, or we should be. The essence of the guilty verdict on Babylon or anyone Judgment comes down upon those who refuse to accept the Lord as their ruler. Instead, what did they do? Here, they made their own idol. They, they trusted in something else without breath or without a brain. Which allows people, listen, when you trust in an idol apart from God, that allows you to justify anything. I know in the business world, I came across more people who justified the goal of making money with their lies and their deceit constantly. And there's all other kinds of things. You, you could sit around at home with whoever you're with, and you could talk about this later, about all the lies and deceit people justify. Today, many people, really, a big one is they worship the idol of being happy. It's a big one in the church. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm all for being happy. Like, give me happy over misery any day of the week. I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. But when that becomes an idol, that's sinful. Why? Because that will take you away from following the Lord. Verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple, probably speaking of heaven. Let all the earth, let everyone keep silence before him. Isn't it interesting? Notice what the Lord has called us to. He's called us to humility. He has called us to holiness. He has called us to integrity. He has called us to sobriety. 
And now he's calling us to silence. Here, vanity and foolishness of following idols is compared with coming into the awesome presence of God who sits on the throne. Habakkuk began this book being frustrated that God was silent. And now the prophet tells us or hears from God that we must all be silent before the living God. Now Habakkuk is realizing that God is in control even when everything and almost everyone seems out of control. And today, if you need hope, if you need strength, if you need confidence like Habakkuk, come to the king who was Lord over all. And that will turn, as we move into chapter 3 next week, wonderful chapter, that will turn the prophets complaining to prayer as he's going to teach us a lot about praying. Habakkuk has come to the place where he no longer needs an explanation for everything from God. Why? Well, he told us last week, the just shall live by his faith. Psalm 11.4 says this, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. In other words, he watches and he sees. His eyelids test the sons of men. Friend, let me tell you, the Lord sees. The Lord knows what's going on. May we all be faithful followers of Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote this long after Habakkuk, after Jesus went to heaven, Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. None of us are going to be able to go to God and go, yeah, well, let me tell you a few things. That's not going to happen. And all the world may become guilty before God. You know, that's what Jesus taught too, that everybody is guilty before God until they put their trust in him. And God says, listen, all the mouths will be stopped. Everybody will be silent. Everybody will accept the verdict. There will be the, the, the evidence against us will be overwhelming against us. God will, te- he will, he will tell us what happened. He'll give us the reason why he makes the verdict that he does. Why? Because we didn't put our trust in his son. Many of us have heard someone say, can I see some identification? What does yours say? Does your spiritual identification say, I reject God and I do my own thing? Or does it say that I'm a follower of Jesus and a child of God and I'm waiting for his glory? Will you face God? And you and I will. Will you face him? Trusting in yourself which says that you remain guilty or will you put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins? for eternal life with God in heaven, to be declared innocent in God's eyes and to get a new identity in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament prophets, Jesus and the apostles taught that we are all guilty before God, that we will all stand silent before the judgment of God. But there is very, very good news. The best news ever. 
that the Lord Jesus Christ has provided an equal opportunity for everyone in the whole world for the verdict to be overturned if you just want him to take your punishment, your sentence, your sins from you on the cross. That friend is for you if you're willing to put your trust in him. For you to be, if you do that, you and I will be part of that day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Yes, friend, that can be you. Today, my hope, my prayer is that we all open our spiritual eyes that we see right now. I was so grieved yesterday seeing the brokenness of this world, seeing, seeing the virus in other parts of the country and, and among different groups of people now going into the southern hemisphere, seeing the brokenness, seeing the virus, seeing the racism, seeing all the woes of this world and realizing and saying to God, God, it seems like the world is buckling under the weight of our sin. But friend, you can put your trust today in the king who is to come, who will hold up this world by the power of his glory. You will be able to experience a world where woes will be turned into eternal worship because the glory of the Lord will cover every inch of the earth and of heaven, and we will be with our God. Well, let's all stand up and let's all pray.